Welcome back, Oscar fans. Tom Anaconda is a huge film fan. He's actually the one who introduced me to Letterboxd originally. Tom, thanks for coming on. Happy to be here, Jake. Today's conversation will cover three of the Best Picture nominees, The Irishman, Ford vs. Ferrari, and Jojo Rabbit. We'll probably take them in reverse order of runtime. But uh, before we get into these specific nominees, Tom, overall, how do you feel about the Oscar movies this year and, and just 2019 as a cinema year in general? Um, I think it was a pretty, pretty strong slate this year. I'm, I'm still working my way through all the movies. I've got a few, got a few left, but so far there hasn't been one that I haven't found interesting. Um, and there's definitely, usually when you get, at least since they've gone to nine to 10 best picture movies, there's usually one or two, um, stinkers every year and I haven't found one yet. So I've been pretty pleased with it. Have you seen Joker yet? I haven't. That it's still on my list. It's showing at one theater in Portland where I am. Um, so hopefully I'll get to it next week. All right. Well, you let me know if you still think there are no stinkers once you've seen Joker. <laughs> let's get into the conversation. And like I said, let's start with the longest of the bunch, Martin Scorsese's three and a half hour Netflix saga, The Irishman. Let me put McGee on the phone. Hello. Hi, my friend. How are you? Listen, I got that kid I was talking to you about here. I'm going to put him on the phone and let you talk to him, okay? Right. Hello? Is that Frank? Yes. Hi, Frank. This is Jimmy Hoffa. Yeah, yeah. Glad to meet you. Well, glad to meet you, too, even if it's over the phone. I heard you paint houses. Yes, yes, sir, I, I do. I do, and I, uh, I also do my own carpentry. Glad to hear that. I understand you're a brother of mine. Yes, sir. Local 107 since 1947. Yeah. You know, uh, our friend speaks very highly of you. Well, thank you. He's not an easy man to please. Well, I do my best. So a lot of the analysis and discussion around the Irishman has been in the context of Scorsese's larger body of work. And there's a lot of that conversation already out there. I'm mostly interested in discussing the film itself as a standalone piece, but starting off, what is your relationship with Martin Scorsese? I mean, I've always I've always enjoyed his films. I haven't seen every single one of them, but um, I, I always enjoy the I always enjoy the way he shoots his movies and the characters that he creates. And I mean, this definitely seemed in peace with with some of his other movies and and in conversation with them in ways that some of his other ones might not have been before. Um, and I mean, this this one just sort of seems like it's also reflects where he is in his career and sort of his age, too. Yeah, it definitely feels like a capstone. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on whether if you kind of separate this from Martin Scorsese, and that's really hard to do. But if you're somebody who's, let's say, never seen a Scorsese film, can this film still work? Yeah, I think it would. I think it's it definitely works better if you've seen if you've seen like Goodfellas and Casino and The Departed. But I think like there's definitely it for for a three and a half hour movie. I didn't find myself bored by it at all. I think there's enough there's enough big characters in it and enough going on in it that like I found it interesting and engaging throughout. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I was really excited to see it, but I definitely had some trepidation that there were parts that were going to drag. It almost seems inevitable in a three and a half hour movie. And then it really didn't happen. Like it, it's as breezy a three and a half hours as you can have in the movies. And I didn't find myself checking my phone or my watch or doing anything else. Did you watch the whole movie at once? 
I did. Yeah. My, um, I was visiting family this past weekend, my grandmother, and she and I stayed up and watched it. And I was, I, I saw the three and a half hour runtime and I was like, and we started the movie at seven 30 at night. And I was like, there's no way we're going to make it through this without falling asleep. And we made it through it without falling asleep. So, yeah, I know it was a huge cinephile purity test to watch it all at once versus breaking it up into a miniseries. I did watch it all at once. And I do actually think that it would have been a different experience for me if I would have stopped and come back to it um, at a later time. So I, I was glad I was able to get it all in, in, in one viewing. Yeah, I mean, my preference would have been to see it in theaters, but it had such a short theatrical window that it just wasn't really possible, which was really, frankly, a bummer with it, because it's like, it definitely is would be better as a big screen movie. And 95% of the people who see it, and maybe more people will see it because it's Netflix, but they're going to see it on a small screen, and they're going to be taking breaks, and they're going to have their phones out. And it's, it's just a different experience. No question. A lot of the conversation that I've seen around this movie, so it's about Scorsese and where it fits into his legacy, and then this conversation that we're having here about Netflix and is it ruining movies or is it allowing movies like Irishman to get made in the first place? And they're all really interesting conversations. They're kind of well-worn. Just thinking about conversations sort of within the lines of analyzing the movie and the story itself, I haven't seen that much. And because of that, I haven't had help with forming my opinions or, or thought process around this movie. I, I really liked it, but in terms of understanding sort of its central intent, you know, is it a character study purely? Is it a American history, kind of a look at just the mob or, you know, just solely a reflection on aging and the value of a life lived? Do you have thoughts on, I guess, which of those lanes, if any, or if a different one, uh, you would categorize this movie within? You can find threads with any of those. Mm -hmm. I think the one that resonated with me most was sort of the aging piece, but sort of that's where I feel like it also speaks most closely to past Scorsese movies, because it's like, if you look at this one, in a lot of ways, Frank Sheeran is victorious in this, in this movie. Like he accomplishes most of his life goals he doesn't get he he's one of the few Scorsese characters who does not die at the end of, who's who's not assassinated in bloody fashion at some point in the movie like by a, by any reasonable measure Frank comes out of this pretty well i mean he doesn't have much of a prison sentence he he comes out he comes out at the end of this he's basically they they emphasize throughout the movie how many of these other guys die bloody deaths um even if they don't usually show it and but yet at the end of the movie, he's sort of this miserable old man in this mediocre nursing home, and um, his his nursing assistant doesn't even know who Jimmy Hoffa is, and he's too ner- he's so nervous that he asked the priest to leave the door open on the way out. So it's like I think it's an interesting reflection of like how you can live this life of of many accomplishments, but if you don't treat people well along the way. What does it come to in the end? Yes, spoiler alert, by the way, on 30 years of Martin Scorsese cinema. Actually, I should say seriously, spoiler alert on The Irishman. Well, we just spoiled it. And also on Ford vs. Ferrari and Jojo Rabbit moving forward in the episode. So I think, do think it's interesting to think about how Frank ends up being in this situation that you're describing at the end. Kind of what causes him to make the choices that lead him down this path style. I mean, he seems almost immediately to supplicate himself to Russell Buffalino in on every matter 
Um, I think most notable is toward the end of the film when they're in jail and he clearly has no real power over him anymore. There's no threat of violence or anything like that, and he's still taking orders on when to eat his food. But is Frank just naturally submissive? I know we see toward the beginning that his experience in the U.S. Army has him predisposed to following authority, but what are your thoughts on kind of what drives Frank's character and the choices he makes throughout this movie? I think he found, he's the type of person who finds finds his status by the people that he's associated with, and he wants to be associated with power, even if he doesn't necessarily want to be in the position of power himself. I think he feels like he's sort of, in a lot of ways, the person, the the guard standing next to the throne, and in some sense, with Jimmy Hoffa, he is that throughout a lot of throughout a lot of the movie, and and that seems to be where he's where he's most comfortable because yeah, like you say, the end, Russell really doesn't have much over him at all, but yet yet Frank is still there and still loyal to him till the end, and <clears throat> and Frank's loyalty Frank's loyalty to him ends up overriding his loyalty to Jimmy too in in an interesting way despite the fact that I think he feels bad for Jimmy and feels like Jimmy's be Jimmy's being is being unfairly targeted in all of this. It supersedes his loyalty to his own family in a weird way. There's a scene pretty early in the movie the worst example of the de-aging technology that mostly works but there's a scene where he goes down to a store because he doesn't like the way the store owner's treated his daughter. He drags the store owner out and proceeds to stomp on him like a 70-year-old would. But uh, anyway, it's really the only paternal moment that we see at all from Frank throughout the whole film, up until he's trying to reconcile at the end, by which time it's obviously far too late. I mean, the, the other interesting thing I think about this is thinking about the perspective through which the story is told, because this is Frank telling his own his own story. And I sort of wonder like what effect that has on sort of the reality of what actually happened versus what we're versus what we're seeing on screen. Like what parts is what parts is he sort of promoting himself in versus what parts are we actually getting a, a glimpse at sort of reality to some extent. You know, that's a really interesting reading. I actually like that a lot. This movie's based on a book. I Heard You Paint Houses, Frank the Irishman, Shireen, and Closing the Case on Jimmy Hoffa by former homicide prosecutor Charles Brand. And at the time, it was in essence a confessional. It was Frank Shireen admitting that he was the one who killed Jimmy Hoffa, which was an unsolved mystery for a lot of time, except a lot of historians don't think that he actually did. A lot of people call into question how accurate the information in the book is. So it actually does make a lot of sense that Scorsese would use this as a storytelling choice, leaning into an unreliable narrator to leave that question in the viewer's mind as well. I think that's really perceptive. So the two other central characters to this story are Jimmy Hoffa, as played by Al Pacino, and Russell Buffalino, the mob boss, as played by Joe Pesci. What were your thoughts on these characters and these performances? First of all, it was just great seeing Pesci on screen again, because I don't know when the last time he was in anything. It's I feel like it's been at least a decade. Yeah, since 2006 with The Good Shepherd, I see three credits on IMDb none of which I'm familiar with, and one which appears to be a Google commercial. Um, 2006 was The Good Shepherd, 1998 before that, Lethal Weapon 4. So he's been out of the consciousness. I mean, he's just such an interesting actor because he finds a way to like radiate power and control in a sort of personage that you, that you, don't, you wouldn't picture having that. Um, and I think he's always just... He's always the he's he plays the type of person the type of person who chooses his words very carefully 
and doesn't need to say much to express a whole lot of meaning. And so I, I really found that quite interesting in that character. That unspoken code that you see throughout the movie that I'm a little concerned about this and then that obviously means that he wants Frank to go take care of it. I think that plays in really well to the way that the movie wraps up because as these people fall out of his life because they're either dead or in jail and he's kind of the last one standing, all of a sudden all this world with all these unwritten rules that he was so fluent in, nobody else understands them and it doesn't really exist outside of this insular mob. And so I think that those choices by Pesci and the way that he plays that character actually do a lot to tell the story and pull through the message that I think Scorsese is going for. Well, it's it's funny because that that Russell Buffalino role feels very similar to like an earlier career Al Pacino role where like if you're looking at like The Godfather or something like that, like it's that same type of like very subtle but still powerful character. Whereas now it's like sort of if you get to Al Pacino here as as Jimmy Hoffa, like it's a he is a much more flamboyant character, and he is just going all over the place in the in this movie. And he he really is a wild card that you can see why these guys don't trust him to do what's best for for the organizations that they represent. It's classic Pacino. It's also understated Joe Pesci relative to I don't know my cousin Vinny or something. So these characters are obviously on a collision course, especially as tensions escalate between Jimmy Hoffa and the rival union boss. It becomes clear that Frank's going to have to pick a side. And I think where the Irishman really goes from being very good to being outstanding is when Frank gets on the plane to go to Detroit. All the audio goes away. It's almost nearly silent for the entire time that he gets into the car till the deed is done. And I think that that's so effective in building the tension. It's brutal. You don't have any reassurance from kind of typical audio cues that would let you anticipate when something's going to happen or how it's going to happen. I thought this was such a brilliant sequence. I'm interested for your thoughts generally on just the final act of this movie. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, the, the sound design is great. And I think sort of it sort of keys you into the fact that you re- then realize that the structure of the movie all along has been leading to this and you didn't re- you didn't really realize it up until then because sort of throughout the movie you've got sort of the shots of like present day Frank in the nursing home but then it's also intercut with these shots uh with these shots of Frank and Russell on this road trip with their wives throughout the thing. And you're like, sort of, where is this, where exactly is this going? Is it taking place at a different time than the nursing home, but it's also taking place at a different time than a lot of the other action that shows younger versions of them. So it's like, what's the significance of this? And then, yeah, sort of when you hit the, when you hit the point with a plane, you're like, Oh, this is where it's going. And it sort of, it really adds to sort of the climax of the movie. And you started to allude to this earlier, but why do you think it is that Frank ultimately decides to kill Jimmy Hoffa, his longtime friend, his family friend, at the direction of Russell over pushing back or making a different decision? I mean, I think that's... Frank is the type of person who does the job that he's given. And, like, I, I think throughout the movie, he, for better and worse, he doesn't really, he doesn't really push back or question what he's asked to do at all. And so, like, I think that's just in his nature. And I think that's part of the thing that ends up that ends up biting him in the end is that he's been answering to these people for the for this whole time. And 
he spends time in prison because of it and loses his wife soon after and his daughters won't talk to him. And like, because he sort of picked this life and was submissive to these people, this is, that's where he ends up. That's where he ends up at the end. He outlasts them all, but, but for what? It's deeply reflective in that way. And I think that that's what the fans of this film really appreciate about it is that you see all that mob intrigue, but kind of thrumming underneath the surface of it is an understanding that it's all for nothing. I think it was a really great film. Do you have any, I guess, parting thoughts on The Irishman? I think it's just worth people's investment of time in it. I don't think it's it's not as intimidating of a movie as it seems with its with its runtime and it flows really easily. Like any good Scorsese movie, it's like there's just there's a really strong through narrative to it. So, it's like it's well worth your time and I mean, I would love to do a rewatch of it at some point too because I think it's like like with any of his movies, the more you unpack it and the more times you watch it, you're going to find something, you're going to find a new thread to it each time. Yes, and in a year where, or actually in a couple of years where filmmakers are looking back on their careers and making movies that take stock of them, you know, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood this year, Painting Glory, Roma last year, I think Scorsese's in essence doing that here. He's looking at the characters that he's chosen to tell stories about and kind of reflecting on on what that means and what this part of American history has meant. And so I couldn't agree more on the investment of runtime being well worthwhile and i think that's true for our second best picture nominee as well i think we'll move on now and talk about james mangold's ford verse ferrari give me one reason why i don't fire everyone associated with this abomination starting with you well sir i was thinking about that very question as a set out there in your lovely waiting room as I was sitting there, I watched that little red folder right there go through four pairs of hands before it got to you. Of course, that doesn't include the 22 or so other Ford employees who probably poked at it before it made its way up to the 19th floor. All due respect, sir, you can't win a race by committee. Ford vs. Ferrari was a movie that I enjoyed a lot. As you look at the overall nominations this year, though, no Matt Damon, no Christian Bale. Best actor was obviously really deep. No James Mangold in a director. You have a few sound categories, but do you have a theory on how Ford vs. Ferrari ended up sneaking into Best Picture when it really didn't show up in all that many other places? If it had, I mean, it, it, in a lot of ways, it's a quintessential Oscar Best Picture movie. I mean, it's got, you've got two giant movie stars. You've got a director who's very talented just in, with in terms of the the shooting of this movie and the sound and how the movie's put together um it's a very masculine story which is something that i think um with 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 pretty clear villains and heroes which i think is something that in in past oscar years would have been could have been really popular i don't know it seemed to it seemed to die i mean and it did well in the, it did well in theaters too the box office was pretty good but it just seemed to die once we get into the oscar race and i mean some of it is that it seems like 1917 took a took sort of the the featured spot where this could have been because that's another well-crafted masculine movie and that one sort of had a much more i think that one had a much more unique hook to it with the sort of like one shot idea that that this doesn't quite have and I could also, I mean, I, I've, I've heard some people speculate about 
the changeover from Fox to Disney and that if Fox still had this movie, they would have run a much better campaign behind it. And Disney doesn't, hasn't really shown much interest in doing that. It's definitely one of the more entertaining movies among the Best Picture nominees. I agree with everything you just said. I will say, though, that I think that ending up in the Best Picture category is about as great an end result that Ford vs. Ferrari could have hoped for. Matt Damon and Christian Bale just weren't going to be there this year, given how deep that category is and how that race evolved. My theory on this is that I think the technical categories carry the day here. So I think that the sound branch and the visual effects branch, they all got votes, and I, I think that they probably really appreciated Ford vs. Ferrari. And then enough other people liked it, and maybe it reminded them of, of years past and, and cinema of the past, and so that elevated it, kind of similar maybe to Joker. Um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting that it ended up here when it really wasn't anywhere else. Putting it in Best Picture is a good way to reward Bale and Damon, even if you're not going to actually nominate them as well. No question that without those performances, this movie doesn't get in. I actually think it's interesting to think about, you have two white male leads, Bale and Damon, that used to be what you would expect when you'd go see a movie, unfortunately, because every story that got made in Hollywood was just about white men. And when you see this now, it's noticeable. And I think that it's interesting in a year, you know, we just talked about The Irishman, that's a movie about masculinity, a very different kind of masculinity. As you watched this movie, did you experience it as a movie about masculinity, or did you just see it as a movie about racing and friendship and the leads happen to be male and white? I think, I mean, I think this one definitely, you you notice it more than others. And I think some of it, it's also, it's like, it's you have to compare to what else is in the movie too. And this one does not, uh, one of the weaknesses i think of this movie is that the very few female characters that they have in this movie are not very are not very well fleshed out at all and um i think that makes that contrast much starker i know a lot of people made that comparison in once upon a time in hollywood but i actually in that movie i more disagreed with it because i felt like that margot robbie sharon tate despite not having a lot of time in it was still a really significant character. It was clearly like a well-loved character. Whereas here, I don't feel like the the only female characters we get are really the wives and uh, the wives of a lot of the main the main male leads. And they're just I don't I've re- I, I remember very little about them because they're sort of like cardboard cutouts in this movie. Ford vs Ferrari reminded me in a lot of ways of First Man last year. Claire Foy and that played. Neil Armstrong's wife, and she did not have a lot to do. I also thought it was similar in what we've been talking about so far that technically First Man was unimpeachable. The experience of launching in a spaceship, I don't know if it's ever been captured with more technical accuracy than in First Man. And that movie got lots of technical awards, but was totally ignored in actor, ended up being ignored in picture. Ford vs. Ferrari, you know, gets the technical nominations and then also does get best picture and that I think as I said I feel like that is about the best case scenario could have hoped for oh yeah as far as the gender thing I definitely noticed I think just in 2020 there's so much conversation about whose stories get to get made and and trying to diversify that that you do notice it but I didn't experience this fundamentally as a movie about masculinity I think even though I know they're driving fast cars but there's something about their friendship that's almost tender yeah Versus The Irishman, which has these undercurrents of unspoken code and a society of men. I just found that they were different experiences, but kind of interesting to take next to each other. Yeah. Well, and I mean, the other thing I found interesting in 
for a movie that's titled Ford, Ford versus Ferrari, that's not really set up as the central conflict of the movie once you're in it either. Um, like ultimately, I felt like it it more seemed it more seemed to be Shelby and Miles versus Ford with sort of Ferrari off to the side. But like by the end of it, I was feeling more empathetic towards Ferrari than I was to, to sort of the, the Ford hegemon that ended up, that ended up winning in this movie. That's a perfect transition to what I wanted to talk about next. Cause this really is a story about how standout individual achievement can be subsumed by just corporateness. Yeah. And the issues of corporatism are probably as relevant as they've ever been. Yep. The majority of the conversation that I've seen around this movie talks about it as a throwback, as like a film of a different era. And I don't know if that's because it's two male leads or because it's two big movie stars, which you don't always get anymore, or it's because it's a movie with big set pieces, or because it just takes place in an earlier time. But I think that this overarching concept of individuals trying to achieve in like a bureaucratic corporate structure that makes that very hard is as current as any topic covered in any Oscar film this year. Oh, yeah, because it's like, I mean, you just look and see sort of how Shelby and Miles get subsumed into this into this Ford machinery. And I mean, you think they're you think they're victorious and then and then they're not because of this because of a ridiculous expectation from from Ford at the end of it. And, And I mean, that's sort of the ultimate tragedy of the movie, too, is like. They win, but not really. Yeah, that was a legitimate gut punch. That's like, you're sick to your stomach when that comes around in the movie. What were your favorite scenes in this one? I enjoyed the, I enjoy the, the test drive, the, the test drive scene where um, Ford get Ford gets strapped into the car and take it out. I think that was, that certainly had me laughing the most in the movie, but I mean, I think just, I mean, the racing scenes in general are just incredible. Just how they put you into the car and around the car and sort of make you feel what a, like, test of endurance that this actually is and how much crazier it is than, like, any other race you've ever seen. It's just very exhilarating throughout. The final 30 minutes of the Le Mans race is really remarkable to watch. I had a sound designer on one of the early episodes, and he talked about how difficult it is to have 30 minutes of just, like, gears shifting. Because the audience gets used to the sound. Like, you eventually would tune it out. And they do such an expert job of building the scene and maintaining it for a really long time that doesn't really lose any of its intensity. And that really brings you into the story. Me and my wife went and saw it together. And, like, if you had to make a list of all the things that my wife is interested in, motorsports is probably, like, in the bottom 10. And she left the movie Googling Le Mans and Googling racing. And I think it's just really remarkable in that way. It, it kind of makes it universal. Um, I thought it was really effective. Yeah. Well, and it's like, I mean, you also just have, like, two extraordinarily charismatic leads playing great characters, too. I mean,. Miles is just like I mean he he's just such an interesting character as a driver and and Shelby just with with everything that's going on in terms of like his bombastic nature about all of this and and sort of the life he lives and sort of how it reflects in the work that he does it, it they're just really interesting playing off one another too. These performances are great. It's great to have Matt Damon back. Will Hunting remains 
my favorite movie probably that I've ever seen. <laughs> and then Christian Bale doing his own accent. Um, just two great performances. I also appreciate that they both ran in Best Actor. One of the biggest pet peeves that I had this year was Anthony Hopkins getting a nomination in Supporting Actor, just complete category fraud. So I appreciate the integrity there from these uh, two superstars. Any wrap-up thoughts on Ford vs. Ferrari? No, I mean, I think, like, in another, in a different year where the pool was not as strong, I think this movie would be contending at a lot more things. Um, it's, like, it's unfortunate for both, for, for both Bale and Damon that, like, the, that the best actor categories are as loaded as they are because it's like I mean I love these performances but I just they just can't stand up to some of the other top ones that are in there too and I think in you look at some other recent weaker years and I think this movie would be contending at a lot of other things and I mean Mangold just like is just such a great director these days and it's like between this and Logan a few years ago he's really on a he's really on a nice little genre run here. Yeah, and walk the line a couple years before that. Yeah. All right. Well, one more movie to cover in this episode. It's going to be an interesting one to talk about. We're going to talk about Jojo Rabbit. Poor Jojo. What's wrong, little man? Hi, Adolf. Want to tell me about that rabbit incident? What was all that about? They wanted me to kill it. I'm sorry. Couldn't. Don't worry about it. I couldn't care less. But now they call me a scared rabbit. Let them say whatever they want. People used to say a lot of nasty things about me. Oh, this guy's a lunatic. Oh, look at that psycho. He's going to get us all killed. I'll say that clip makes me laugh. I can really color the conversation on Jojo Rabbit with almost anything I say. So just broadly, how did you like this movie? Um, I thought it was interesting. Um, I So I will say... I love Taika Waititi as a as both an actor and a director. Um, I think I loved Thor Ragnarok. Uh, what We Do in the Shadows is one of the most funny and interesting movies I've seen in the last in the last decade. And I just find like everything that he does to be extremely engaging. And he takes big swings. And I wouldn't call this one a miss, but I think it's definitely like it's definitely a foul tip or something. Um, cause it's like, it's a really interesting, it's a really interesting concept. It's a really interesting idea of sort of looking at, looking at an authoritarian regime through the eyes of a child who grows up in that machinery and idolizes the people that are in charge of it. And, um, I mean, the story in a lot of ways is sort of the veil coming, the, the veil coming off of his eyes over the course of this movie. And I think it, it's interesting and successful in, in that way. But yeah, it's definitely it's definitely out there. It's out there for sure. Although I will say I actually found the movie writ large to be rather conventional, and we'll get into that. One of the things that didn't interest me in, as much in this movie was just the message, because I read it as fairly basic and like kindergarten level. Just be nice to people. Don't hate. It's a good message, but I don't know. Did you read more into it than that yeah i mean i think i mean i sort of took it as like everyone reflects the people reflect the the society that they grow up in but that they have the capacity for change um and in this case as as jojo is exposed to more to to 
more things in his life, he he is able to change over the course of the movie and evolve in a positive way and and see and also see how things are not as simple as he thinks they are. I think like the biggest reflection for that to me is his mother's character. I, th- I think actually it's a really great job by Scarlett Johansson in this movie because I think like when you sort of see her through Jojo's eyes at the beginning of the movie, she's like this she's like this model of Aryan perfection. Um, and then very quickly we get, we sort of over the course of, over the course of the first half of the movie, we see that now she's putting on, she's putting on a facade and she's actually something entirely different. And, um, and we get to see that through, we get to see that through Jojo's eyes. And I think that's really compelling. And, and she, she brings a lot to that role. So that's a really smart take. And I can already tell that you have a much more intellectual perspective on this movie than I do. I think my experience going into the movie, or I guess coming out of the movie, was that, yeah, that this message was simple, but also a message that everybody is sort of definitely going to agree on. Like, I know that there are people in 2020 that don't agree with an anti-hate message, and that's, of course, problematic, but those people aren't going to go see that movie. So, like, I guess initially my experience was like, why am I being patted on the back for agreeing with something that... Of course, anybody who comes to see this movie is going to agree with. Yeah. So when he then delivers that message in a way that's clearly meant to be shocking, I didn't feel shocked. And the parody, that that's where it just didn't work for me. I'm like, this is obvious. This isn't, I don't feel brave for sitting in a theater with 50 other people who all came to this theater understanding that clearly Hitler is the embodiment of the absolute worst thing that's ever happened in the history of the world and Jojo's discovering this, but, like, we're not discovering this. We knew it walking in. We knew it walking out. The parody just didn't work for me on that level. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it's almost... This is almost meant to play as, like, a fable or a children's morality tale in some ways. And, I mean, I think it it ends up feeling somewhat the feeling of being subversive comes from the fact that like it's a it's a fable that takes place in Nazi Germany and this kid is seeing a vision of a very goofy friendly hitler um that his best that's his best imaginary friend played by Taika Waititi and so like i think that's where sort of you get you get sort of the subversive the subversive element to it i'm not sure how much that actually that works particularly well but um, I mean, I feel like the idea of of showing this show, sort of showing this type of this type of regime through the eyes of a child, I found that I found that piece of it to be to be compelling and to be like the to sort of get me thinking like, well, what would what would it have been like to be to to sort of grow up in the in the Nazi regime and and like how would you how would you how would you feel about it and you wouldn't necessarily see the wrong in it if if that's what just if that's all you know if that's all you've known yeah i got to tell you this is one of my favorite things about doing this podcast it's fun to have a conversation about like let's say parasite and point out all the nuance within the movie and like discuss the plot but you know both people kind of usually come into that conversation like yeah this was a great movie and we'll just kind of talk about it further my experience coming out of Jojo Rabbit was like I was really unimpressed by it and listening to you now like make smart points about it like that I'm like well maybe I just kind of had the wrong reading of it <laughs> and and I think like the interesting thing about the movie and I got to give 
Roman Griffin Davis, the actor who plays Jojo, a lot of credit is that everybody else in this movie is playing this as a comedy because in a lot of ways, the movie is a comedy. He's the only one who's really not, maybe he and, and Scarlett Johansson to some extent, but even she has played some of it as comedy. He's the only one who's really playing, he's playing the straight man in all of this. And he takes this all completely seriously. Um, whereas like everybody else is sort of, to some extent, in on the joke that this is that this is ridiculous and we're playing the we're playing these Nazis off as complete and utter buffoons. But I think like he's so he's so earnest about it that it does get you it does get you into his head in an interesting way. Yeah, the child performances are great. Roman Griffin Davis is great. Thomas McKenzie is quickly becoming one of my favorite actors working uh, from Leave No Trace last year. I can't remember the name of Jojo's friend. Archie Yates. I've yeah, he was very funny. Yeah, so I'm on board with the performances. I think what it came down to for me is like the producers came out in 1967, right? That was a movie that was shocking because they made light of Hitler 20 so years after the Holocaust. You know, for context, 9-11 was about 20 years ago. So a lot of people remember an event 20 years after it happens. I think that by the time this movie came out, you know, we've had the producers obviously and then endless satire of Hitler and of you know Saddam Hussein in the South Park movie and even like Family Guy makes fun of Hitler it just doesn't feel shocking anymore and so I feel like I walked out being like well Taika Waititi is trying to shock a message into me I'm not shocked I don't even understand what the message is it feels really simple but a lot of that I guess is me assuming intent and like the way that you're evaluating is probably more fair honestly like you're working within the contours of the text and I appreciate that. Yeah, I feel like a lot of the shock discussion around this movie was maybe more of the critical reception to it and people being like criticizing the movie or or critiquing the movie for not taking its subject matter seriously enough. I mean, because this movie doesn't really tackle the seriousness of the Holocaust in, in any significant in any significant way. That's just not it's not the focus. It's not the focus of the movie. It's the movie is focusing for the most for the most part on sort of the Nazis or people or sort of people living under the Nazi regime. And it seemed like a lot of the critique was over that and, and then his portrayal of, of Hitler as well. But I feel like the the story to me just seemed to be more about these children and their and their place with their place within within this time period, and I, I found that part at least to be interesting. Well, I found this conversation to be interesting across the board. Really appreciate the time. Any parting thoughts on Irishman, Ford vs Ferrari, Jojo Rabbit, or just twenty nineteen cinema in general? Um, I mean, I think just it's a there's a really great variety of movies. I think in the in the best picture race this year, and I mean these these three reflect that quite well. I mean it funny like the irishman is the irishman and ford versus ferrari are probably your most like sort of stereotypical best picture type contenders but like the irishman was produced and produced by netflix and was barely it was barely in theaters and then we have a movie like jojo rabbit which is in there which doesn't really check any specific box other than that maybe it's about nazis and there tend to be a lot of oscar (laughs) movies that focus on world war two but it doesn't it definitely doesn't fit into an easy box for for the oscars but but still ended up here nonetheless and i mean i think it it does speak highly as to how the how well the academy thinks of taika watiti and so that's exciting because i mean he is a director who's 
picks challenging subjects and does interesting things with them, whether it's on TV or in the movies. So hopefully this means he's getting the keys to a lot more fancy automobiles going forward. I expect he will. Well, it'll be interesting to see what emerges on Oscar night. Yeah, I mean, these are interesting. These three are interesting ones to talk about because I don't think they're gonna. I don't think any of them are are particularly strong in terms of are going to be a strong contender for best picture. But they're all. But they're all interesting movies nonetheless. So that they are. Thanks for coming on to talk about them. Thanks for having me, Jake. <laughs>